Today's scripture comes from Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God. For For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and of the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enters, will they not say anything, say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, Is he convicted by all? He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only one or two, most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, 
and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophecy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches to the, sta- to the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their hubs- husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. You guys go have a seat. Thank you, Grant. Hey, you guys didn't know you came for such a good time, right? That's going to be fun. Yeah. Hey, I want to say, too, just while we're getting situated here, uh, if you're new to our church family, and especially if you're new, if you haven't really read the Apostles' Creed publicly in a church before, uh, maybe you were surprised when you encountered the word Catholic. Like, wow, I didn't know I walked into a Catholic church this morning. Like, they really disguised that pretty well. Um, When that, so when that word is used in a sentence, um, It really, the simple meaning of that word is universal or whole or one, like one united whole universal, right? So we believe in the holy Catholic church, meaning we believe Jesus has one family. All these local churches are expressions of that family, but it's not like a subtle veiled head nod to the papacy or to the Roman Catholic church, okay? It's lowercase c. It just means Jesus has one family. We believe that we are a part of that family uh, by faith in Christ. So that's what that, that's what that means. Okay, let's pray, and we will get right down to work. Father, we thank you for bringing us here uh, this morning. We have uh, some ground to cover in this very important letter. Uh, bottom line is, we, if something is unfamiliar to us or strikes our modern ears wrong, we want to be able to wrestle with it and understand it so that we would be the people that you have called us to be and created us to be. We want to be a healthy church, a church that is not a slave to our preferences or our opinions, but a church that is in glad submission to you, Jesus, as our King. And uh, in order to be that church, many of us have unlearning to do. We have learning to do. We've, many of us have grown up in circles that maybe emphasize certain passages of Scripture and ignore others or just all kinds of things. And so we just, we know we have work to do to read and to understand and to submit. So I pray that you would help us to do that today uh, through your Spirit, that we would have humble hearts and receptive hearts and uh, just hungry to hear what you as our Father would say to us. And Jesus, we want to be the church that you have called us to be and Spirit, we know we can't do this on our own. We need your empowering presence, and so we, we gladly welcome you and your presence with us this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so our series theme, just for a couple more weeks now, we're almost done with 1 Corinthians, is gospel-formed, becoming who we are, a united family in a fractured city. And this morning, the simple big idea that we're going to see in this passage is this right here. We become who we are when we show up to church 
to build up the church. If you want it even shorter than that, which that's pretty short for me, but if you want it shorter, um, here it is. Show up to build up. That's, that's what this chapter is saying. Show up to build up. Now, that's, that immediately flies in the face of the cultural Christianity that many of us are used to. In our culture, the church exists as something of a, an organization that delivers a product to you. Like you show up on a Sunday morning and you expect a good to be, to, to be delivered to you or a service so that we can consume something, right? Culturally, that's how we've come to think of church. So rather than show up to build up, the cultural paradigm would be more like show up to soak up, right? It's about me. It's about my preferences for something in a church. Like I go where I like. I expect to feel a certain kind of way. I should be able to walk away feeling, uh, just feeling good, right? Feel, it's about me and my preferences, my desires. And immediately, guys, Paul's like, no, dog, you show up to build up, right? That's why we gather together as a family. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. I want to show you, I'm getting that right out of this passage. I'm not making it up. Look at verse 26. He says, what then, brothers, when you come together, right? The, the, the church family, when you come together, Christians always come together like family. We gather regularly to hear our Father's voice and to be present with each other. Remember, we've been learning this over the last couple of weeks, for the common good. So when we come together, Christians come together. There's no such thing as isolated Christianity. It's not a solo sport. It's not something that we do on our own. When Jesus rescues us, he adopts us into a family. And the bottom line is this family, guys, God's family, the Holy Catholic Church, if you will, we gather. That's what we do. We gather regularly because that's what our Father wants for us to do. So we show up. We don't just show up. We show up to build up. Look at verse 26 again. And Paul says, listen, let all things be done for building up, right? When, so when you come together, I want all things done. Everything that you do as a family, everything to be done for one purpose, and that is uh, to build up. That word build up has behind it the idea that Jesus has already laid the foundation for something, which he has. He started building something in your life when he adopts you into the family. So now the role that we play as a family is we come around each other and we build on the foundation that Jesus has already laid. So we gather to build each other up. That's what Paul says also in verse 12. He says, I want you to strive to excel in building up the church. That's strong language, right? Strive and excel. He's basically saying, I want you to work hard at this and get good at this. If you as a church family could only be good at one thing, this should be it, that you show up to build up. That's like strive to excel at this. So guys, right off the bat, Paul's saying, look, our church expression, our gathering is not primarily for myself. It's for the good of others. Now, do I benefit if I show up? Yes, absolutely. There's profound benefit, like big time. But primarily, through the lens of the gospel, the gathering does not exist for me and my good. The gathering exists for the common good, and we gather to build each other up. So we can't build up if we don't show up. If it's not a priority, we can't even begin to fill this command, right? If we're not present, we can't be building up. If we, don't, we can't build up if we don't show up. So showing up matters, but why we show up matters even more. And so we could say it positively, we become who we are when we show up to build up the church. And how do we do that? You're like, John, I got it. Look, here I am. You can stop saying that. Like, I'm here. I was here last week. I'm here every week, right? I'm here. Um, how, how do we go about the work of building each other up? 
Well, notice how Paul starts this chapter off, two, two very simple commands. He says, I want you to pursue love, right there, pursue love, and I want you to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So we know from last week that we pursue love by pursuing Jesus. We know the Father's love through him, and his love for us leads us to increasingly reject our self-centered spirituality for others-oriented self-sacrificing expressions, right? So we only know that through pursuing Jesus, and then we know the Father's love. And what we learned last week is in love, God turned toward us for our good when we least deserved it, right? He, he turned toward us for our good. So to pursue love means that we would consciously choose to turn toward each other for each other's good, even if and when other people in our family don't deserve that kind of love. We turn toward each other for the common good, right? So that's step one, pursue love. And then he says, I want you to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, meaning we would actually like actually pray for the Spirit's empowering presence. Now remember, uh, the way we've been understanding spiritual gifts, this is a a helpful definition from uh, Sam Storms. He says, spiritual gifts are God present in, with, and through human thoughts, deeds, words, and love to remind us that Spiritual gifts are not something that we have independent of God. It's not your personality. You didn't get it from listening to a TED Talk. You don't get it through listening to a self-improvement podcast. Like, listen to them. Listen to a TED TED Talk. That's great. Work on your personality. That's all good. But that's not what spiritual gifts are. Spiritual gifts are an actual expression of the Spirit being present in you and through His power working for the good of another person. That's a spiritual gift, right? So he's saying, if we're going to earnestly desire them, what that looks like is that we would pray consciously that he would work through me for the good of others when I'm present with his family. So when I park at the USO and I walk over here, the word that what I'm praying is I'm about to be present with the family. Spirit, please be powerfully present in me, not for my fame, not for my own good, but please, when I'm present with the family, work through me for the good of the people that I will be around. Make me sensitive to their needs. Uh, may the words that I say be life-giving to them, right? We pray these things. Maybe we even need to ch- pray that God would change our desire, that we would want to be with the family, that he would change our view of the church, so that it doesn't exist for me. I exist to be present for the common good, right? Praying, Father, I'm going to go show up with your family. Jesus, I want to love as you have loved me. Spirit, be present with me and do a work through me. That's what it would sound like to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Now, the last two weeks, we've learned about spiritual gifts, and we acknowledge that all of us tend toward extremes when it comes to spiritual gifts, right? We, we tend toward extremes, and that's not good. That's not good that we tend toward extremes. Honestly, that's not good in most areas of life that we tend toward extremes, right? And so we used an image last week to help us kind of visualize what that looks like, and it was helpful for me. I don't know if it was helpful for you, so I'm bringing Bernie back just one more week because I thought it was helpful, okay? So remember, there's cessationist Bernie, and the word cessationist just means it's a theological position that you would believe most of the gifts that we're encountering in this portion of Scripture are no longer active or exist in the life of the church today, okay? And so I'm just going to tell you, like, if that's you, and honestly, it is most of you, most of us come from that kind of background, whether we know it or not. Those are the churches that we have belonged to. And if that's you, this passage is going to push on you, and I'm glad it's going to. Like, for example, verse 1, the command is earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially what? Whoa. What? What? Okay, that's there. Verse 5, what does Paul say here? 
Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Like that, Paul said that, okay? I'm not saying it. Paul said it. And then verse 18, I th- here's Paul's admission. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, right? So look, if your cessation is burning, the burden of proof rests on you, dog. Like if you don't believe prophecy is for today or tongues are for today, you've got to come up with a compelling and clear argument from Scripture that would say something different than what Paul just said to us, okay? I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying that's what you have to do if you're going to take uh, cessationist Bernie's position there, okay? That's what you got to do. Burden of proof's on you. Uh, Paul's laid his cards on the table. Now, if you are um, crazy Bernie, hyper-charismatic Bernie, right? Where what I mean by that is all the gifts have to be active all the time at the loudest volume, and it's a constant test of your relationship with Jesus, and if you don't speak in tongues, then maybe you're not a Christian, right? Which we saw the last couple of weeks, Paul's clearly dispelling that position, pushing back on it. Then this passage is going to push on you too, and I'm glad that it will. So for example, verse 19, Paul says, in church, I would rather you speak five words with your mind than 10,000 words in a tongue. Verse 27, Paul says, if any person speaks in a tongue, let there be only how many? Did you hear it? Two or three at the most. And in our culture, when we hear about or experience tongues, the normal dynamic that we're used to is what? A room full of people or a lot of people uttering sounds that don't make any sense. It's not a known language without interpretation, right? Just lots of noise. And Paul's saying that's wrong, right? He's going to push on that. Two or three, each in turn, and somebody has to interpret. And then what he says in verse 28 is, if there's no one to interpret, then stop talking. Be quiet. No tongues. Okay? So it's going to push on you a little bit. And again, the burden of proof rests on your shoulders if your practice or your preferences are different than what Paul just laid out. So it's pushing on both extremes. Actually, it's pushing this way, pushing us towards the middle, towards our third Bernie, Christocentric Bernie, right? Not on the extreme of cessationism, not the hyper-charismatic crazy Bernie, but in the center, verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Verse 39, earnestly desire to prophesy. And listen, what did Paul say? Don't forbid the speaking in tongues. Don't forbid it, he says. Verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order when the church is gathered together. And in verse 12, Paul says, you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. That's good. I want you to strive to excel in building up the church. Okay, so it's, this passage, Paul's going to push on all of us and push us towards the middle, which is good, and remind us that we become who we are when we show up to build up. So pursue love, but also, guys, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Now in chapter 14, Paul's going to show us if we are going to be this kind of family, Christocentric, right, Christ at the center, not at the extreme, submitting to what we see in, in Scripture, that when we show up, here's, here's, here's what he's going to argue for the entire chapter, the expression of our gifts must be understandable and relatable both to people on the inside, like people in the family, it's got to be uh, known and understandable and relatable, but it's also got to be understandable and relatable to people outside the family who find themselves visiting with us for a day or for a season. That's why Paul says right off the bat in verses 1 to 5, when it comes to worship gatherings, then prophecy is greater than tongues. 
And the problem, we, we've been seeing this in, in Corinth, they overvalued tongues. That tongues had too dominant or too prominent of a place in their family. And Paul's going to say, look, both have a place. Prophecy has a place. Tongues has a place. But prophecy, when the family is gathered, holds the greater place. And that's why he says, fam, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, but especially what? Prophecy. I want you to desire that one more. Now, just by review, by way of review, prophecy, we can understand it this way. Prophecy is a revelatory word, like, and by revelatory, we mean God is revealing something to someone. It's a revelatory word from God for his family. It's not fortune-telling. It's not predicting the future. If it sounds anything like the Lord of the Rings or looks anything like the Lord of the Rings, it's probably not biblical prophecy. Right? And look, we, I, that just has to be said. I actually watched a video not too long ago of a church in California that had a prophetic moment on the stage, and they got, I'm not even joking, it was Gandalf's staff, and one of them was wearing a little, like a wizard hat thing. I, this is a, a gospel-confessing church, right? And they slipped in, I listened to it, and they actually slipped in quotes from the Lord of the Ring, whether they just watched it too much and that's what came from their mouths or whether it was on purpose, but I'm not lying, I'm not making this up. Guys, it's just not biblical prophecy. There's a viral video making its rounds of popular hyper-charismatic preachers who, in the run-up to the election, prophesied, like went on the line, put themselves out on the line and prophesied that Trump would win a second term and said a whole lot of, a lot of stuff about that. Guys, was he, was he elected to a second term? Okay. All right. I know there's a little, yeah, he was, but he didn't. no, he, he didn't. Like, he was not elected to a second term. That was all false prophecy. Like, that's, that's not prophecy. That's not what Paul's talking about um, in here, okay? So prophecy is a revelatory word from God for his family. It's not fortune-telling, not predicting the future. We'll unpack it a little bit more as we go on, and not Lord of the Rings. Now, for tongues, tongues is a spirit-inspired unintelligible verbal utterance. So it's a language, but not a a known language, okay? It's a verbal utterance, and it's directed to God. It's prayer or praise that's directed to God, where our spirit is communicating with God, the Holy Spirit, and it's being done in an unintelligible language. So Paul's like, all right, guys, why should we desire prophecy more? Well, look, the person who speaks in tongues speaks to God. So tongues is not for the family. There's no secret message that's in tongues, right? So often we culturally we think when tongues are being spoken, we've got to have an interpreter so that the family can understand whatever secret message is being communicated for the family. But that's not tongues, guys. Tongues is simply a language of prayer or giving praise to God, almost like God is indescribable and his glory is beautiful and so beyond our our understanding that tongues is almost something of an expression of all of those things that's beyond our comprehension. But there's no hidden meaning for the family, no secret message. And so Paul says nobody understands him or her because they're uttering mysteries in the spirit. And since that's what's happening, the person speaking in tongues builds himself up now, when we read that, we think, well, that's bad, right? Paul's saying that's bad, but that's not bad. It's good that you're built up. It's good. It's just the wrong place and the wrong time. Like speaking in tongues is the gift that does build you up in your relationship with God, but not here. Like, that's for you and for God and your relationship together. Wrong time, wrong place. And so that's why Paul says, guys, I want all of you to speak in tongues. It's good for you. It'll build you up in your relationship with God. I, w- I would like you all to do it. It's good for you. 
But even more, I want you to prophesy because the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. That word consolation means hope. And that, so that's what, that's what prophecy is. It's speaking to God's people on behalf of God for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. And Paul says the person who's prophesying builds up the church. And what's the purpose for our gathering? To build each other up, right? So that's why Paul's saying uh, prophecy is greater than tongues when the church family is gathered. He does give a caveat. He says prophecy is greater than tongues unless there's interpretation, because if there is interpretation of a tongue, that can build up the church, even though it's not its primary primary purpose. And then he gives some examples to kind of help us think this through from verses 6 to 12. He, he, he just gives us these examples to demonstrate uh, the, his point that prophecy is greater than tongues for the gathered church. He begins with a question in verse 6. He says, guys, look, if I show up speaking in tongues, how will I benefit any of you? And what's his answer rhetorically? I won't. I, there will be no benefit to you if I walk across the bridge from the USO and I step in here and I speak in a tongue. It's not, it's not going to benefit the gathered church. And so then he asks some questions, or gives some examples, rather. His first example, he points out a flute and a harp. If they're not playing distinct notes, which isn't that like everybody's fourth and fifth grade? That's where you get a recorder. It's a recorder, right? That's, that's what he's talking about. You remember that noise? That's tongues in a gathered setting without interpretation. There's no dis- there are no distinct notes. So how do you know what song's being played? And the bottom line is a fourth grade teacher does not know. She has no clue. It's just noise. That's all she's getting paid to do with you, right? It's just noise. Um, isn't there a new TV show? Something about like they play one note and you have to name the song. Have you seen that yet? No? Man, you gotta catch up on your American TV. It's like a new reality show. They play like the very first note and then right, you guess and you win money or something like that. I, I, I could not, I couldn't play, I could not, I could not even play that, play that game. But it would be like Grant and team being up here, and they're just up here playing without, no rehearsal, no sheet music, just playing sounds. How would that feel to your spirit and your soul? How would that land on you? That would be so unpleasant, wouldn't it? It'd be, it'd be awful. That's what Paul's saying. And then he says, look, if a bugle gives an indistinct sound, uh, who would get ready for battle? And again, his answer is no one. Like, it doesn't benefit anybody. Now, we can all visualize this because there is a subtle difference in the sounds at colors time on Kadena, like on Kadena versus being on a Marine Corps base. Have any of you ever experienced that or heard that? No? All right, so you got to make a family outing, take the family onto, like, onto a Marine Corps base, at colors time, experience that. Then the next day, you need to go beyond Kadena. There are some subtle differences, and so it's fantastic. Like, just stand there and watch. I know you're not supposed to be, like, moving around and looking at people, but stand there and, and crowd watch. And people, if they're, not, if they're not where they belong, they don't know when to move or when to stop standing still. Or It's fantastic, right? And that's his point. If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who knows when to stand at the position of attention or salute or stop moving or start moving? Nobody knows. And then he points us to our tongue. He says... If I use unintelligible sounds, will anybody know what I'm saying? And again, the answer is no. If I just stood up here and babbled, you would have no clue what I'm saying. And so Paul says there's a lot of languages in the world. None of those languages are without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of a language, I'm a foreigner. And that word behind the, foreigner, uh, behind the word foreigner is actually barbarian. It's where we get our word barbarian. 
And if um, I relate to this example the most. Living in Okinawa, I feel like a barbarian. Like having been here for five years now, and I live out in town, and my life basically happens out in town. Um, I don't, I know so little. I know when somebody says hello, and I know a few words, but I can go to the barber shop and get my hair cut, and they could be talking about me, and I would have no idea. And they probably do, and they probably are, right? And and it, 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 it feels a certain kind, it makes you feel like a foreigner is what Paul's saying, a barbarian, like you don't belong. It leads to a sense of frustration. Like the longer you're in an environment and you can't speak the host language, the more you will begin to feel isolated. You'll feel isolated, you'll feel alone, you'll feel like a foreigner. You will feel like I don't belong. Coincidentally, uh, 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 we took a road trip up to Nago yesterday. Anybody else go up to see the cherry blossoms? Okay, it's peak, it's peak weekend, and it's a nice day, so you better go. Like you, got, you, you gotta go, it's gonna start fading here soon. So we're, we're on the way up, and we're just chit-chatting, and one of my kids is like, yeah, how long do you think we'll live in Okinawa? And so we're chatting, we're like, man, I don't know. Well, I don't know, how long do you wanna live in Okinawa? And they said, yeah, a couple more years. And so we asked them, where would you like to go next? And this child says, I'd like to go back to California. And so we say, why would you like to go back? To, yes, why would you like to go back to California? Because, here's straight up, this was the answer, because I can understand what people say and more people there understand what I'm trying to say when I talk. This is not my oldest child either, this is one of my younger children. That's exactly what Paul's saying. That's the effect that tongues has on the gathered church. It produces a sense of alienation, isolation for some, for a lot of insiders, but especially for non-Christians who would be present, okay? So what Paul's saying is shared meaning matters. Shared meaning matters. Understanding matters. Intelligibility matters. Intelligibility of what we say and what we do. That's what he says in verse 12. He says, look, it's the same thing with you guys. You, you desire the Spirit's empowering presence. Good. Keep striving to excel in building people up. And in order to do that, you need to speak words like distinct notes and beautiful songs. It's got to have a harmony and a melody. There's got to be shared meaning. The words have got to be understood so that they can move a soul like a beautiful, powerful ballad would move your soul to feel a certain kind of way. Shared meaning, understanding, it matters, okay? And so then he rolls into some application, verses 13 to 18. He says, look, if the Holy Spirit gives you the gift of tongues, you need to be praying for the gift of interpretation. Otherwise, there's no value to the gift of tongues for the family. It still has value for you and enjoy it in private. Commune with God in private if that is the gift the Spirit has given to you. Now listen, again, no guilt, no shame. The Spirit may not give this gift to a lot of you. You are not less of a Christian. You don't have to doubt your Christianity. It's fine. The Holy Spirit gives gifts as he wills. Some of you may receive that gift. Others of you will not, okay? Just to be clear on that. But when the church family gathers with no interpretation, tongues have no shared meaning, no value. So, so, so now Paul kind of anticipates this question in verse 15. There's a question like, all right, what am, I, what am I supposed to do, Paul? If I'm charismatic, Bernie, it sounds like you're asking me to suppress my communion with the Holy Spirit when the family's gathered, like I'm supposed to tone down my connection to God or my enthusiasm because of my connection with the Spirit. And Paul's like, no, it's not what I'm asking you to do. Look, listen, he says, when you pray and when you sing, you sing and you pray with your spirit. That's his way of saying, sing your heart out. If you come from this background, if you're gifted in this way, be all in 
raise your hands, sway your body, engage with the Holy Spirit, do all of those things. Now, some of you, look, most of us are cessationist Bernie, whether you know it or not. Like, we just are. Like, we have to be able to wrestle with that and be okay with it. So if you come from that background, like, you have a physical inability to even raise your hands when we're singing anyway. Like, and you know what we're talking about. Um, yeah, but Paul's saying, for those of you who are so engaged with the Spirit in the Spirit, your heart out and don't be ashamed and don't be embarrassed. Your presence is good for the family. Be enthusiastic. Raise your hands. Be excited. But he says, when you're gathered, I also want you to pray and sing with your mind. Meaning, what he, what he means by that is, in your expressions of your connection with the Spirit and His presence in you, when the family is gathered, it's got to be expressed with relatable understandable shared meaning for the rest of the family, but also for the outsiders or the visitors who may be with us. Why? Well, so outsiders know what you're saying, he says, and they can agree. They can say amen is what it says there. Otherwise, they, they, they agree and their spirits can't be moved if they don't know what you're saying. But it's not just about the outsiders. It's for other family members as well so that, he says, they can be built up by the Holy Spirit's expression through you. So Paul's like, look, I'm glad that I speak in tongues. I do more than any of you. But what he means is I do privately more than any of you. This was a private expression, personal expression for Paul. And, and so that's what he says. Listen, family, when the family gathers, I would rather you speak just five words, five words. And you're like, man, I wish John would just speak five words. That's fantastic. Five words with meaning. Just think about that for a moment. Five words with meaning, then 10,000 words with no meaning at all. So for the gathered family, prophecy is greater than tongues. To make his point, he's being a little extreme, but five words with meaning, that's, a, that's not even a complete sentence. But guys, this is how serious Paul is. An incomplete sentence, an incomplete idea that is expressed with intelligibility and shared meaning, so we're all, we're all tracking, those five words are of greater value and more important than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, for perspective, my sermons are normally about 2,800 words. Hard to believe, I know. 3,000 words at the most. So that would be like sitting through four of my sermons, and Paul's saying five words are better, right? Five words. That's how serious Paul is about this, guys. Okay, so we become who we are when we show up to church to build up the church, and we, we build up other people when we pursue love, right? We pursue Jesus. We earnestly desire spiritual gifts, and the expression of those gifts is understandable and relatable for both insiders and outsiders, for our family members, for our neighbors, for our friends, and for our first-time guests. That's everything that Paul said so far. So the question we need to ask at this point, are we? Like, I think the starting question is, are we committed to showing up? Is it a priority for us? Because if we're not, and if we don't show up consistently, relationally, then the rest of this chapter, quite frankly, doesn't matter, right? That's the starting point. We just have to be committed to being present, like gathering with the family is a priority for us. So that's the first thing that Paul's saying. So we got to be committed to show up. And we, so, so we just need to ask the question, is that a priority for my family? And for us as a couple, for me as a single person, uh, am I committed to that level? Is, is that a priority for me? Is showing up a priority? Then we have to ask the second question, what is the purpose in my showing up? right? Is my purpose to be present with the family so that I can be build, building other people? 
Or have I just really been trained that well by the culture that my purpose in, in showing up is just what I've been taught to do, like show up to soak up. Like you show up, feel a certain kind of way, get what you're looking for, and go have a fantastic week, right? So we've been asking that purpose question too. Now, Paul's going to give one more reinforcement that prophecy is greater than tongues for the gathered church, and he's going to do it from the Old Testament. Uh, it looks a little confusing, but let me just explain it very briefly. And Paul says, family, I want you to think carefully about this. Let's be mature in our thinking, not like little kids. Let's, let's consider this seriously. And then he quotes the prophet, prophet Isaiah. If you want to look at it later, it comes from Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. And in Isaiah 28, what Isaiah is talking about is where God used a strange tongue, or we could say lips of foreigners, as judgment against his people. The reason they were being judged is God had sent prophets, right? And they had rejected the prophets. In fact, they were mocking Isaiah, and they were mocking the other prophets. And so God's saying, look, I'm done giving you a clear word. Your hearts are hard. You're, you're, you're rebelling. So I'm going to judge you. And he, he judged them through the conquering Assyrians. And so he, God actually started speaking to his own people through the Assyrians, right? Speaking a foreign language. And the reason he was doing that was to ensure their continued unbelief. It was judgment for their rejection of the plain words that God had given them. And so it ensured their unbelief and their lack of obedience. So what Paul's saying then, in this sense, tongues were a sign of unbelief, right? It led to continued unbelief because they... They, well, before they could understand and they could have responded, but they had a hard heart. So God's like, all right, fine. I'm going to give you a language that you cannot understand, that you cannot respond to, and it will ensure that your heart remains hard. It's judgment. So that's what Paul means when he says tongues were a sign of unbelief. Prophecy, however, was a sign of believing. In other words, that clear word could have led to belief. It could have led to obedience. They could understand it. They could respond and they could obey. So now fast forward, Paul's saying, guys, look, here's all I'm trying to say. Tongues will not serve outsiders to the family well at all, because if you're speaking in tongues, it doesn't give them a coherent message to believe. In fact, if an outsider were to step into the family and we were all speaking in tongues, what does Paul say? They're going to think you're outside of your mind, that you're crazy. And is Paul right? Yes. Paul's not just right for the outsiders. Paul's right for the insiders. If you have been in an environment like that, unless you grew up in it, if you as a follower of Jesus step into that environment where all the Christians are just rocking the tongues, you think as a Christian that they're outside of their minds, right? So that's what Paul's saying. They're going to think you're crazy. But on the other hand, a clear, intelligible proclamation of truth, prophecy may very well lead to conviction. It will call an unbeliever to account, and it will disclose the secrets of their heart. There's a very real possibility then that they will respond in belief. That's what Paul means when he says they could fall on their face in worship of God who created them. They would repent, and they would believe. And so in that sense, Paul is saying prophecy is a sign for believers or believing people. And so this is Paul's way of saying that it matters that what we do and what we say here when we gather as a family is understandable and relatable to outsiders. It matters. The words that we say, the prayers that we pray, that we guard against even insider language, the songs that we sing make sense 
to somebody in our culture who is not yet a Christian. What we do uh, makes sense. It's, it's understandable. And so what Paul's saying, guys, is we should be considerate of people who do not yet believe. And for many of us, this should confront, like this should confront those of us who come from church backgrounds, which teach or taught us that everything going on here at church is for insiders, right? You know the terminology that I grew up with that was used as a derogatory term of a church? Does anybody know? You, you tracking what I'm thinking? Which would be weird, but I'm just checking. It was called seeker-sensitive, right? And if a church was seeker-sensitive, they weren't faithful to the Bible anymore. Like, they were, they were more concerned about what outsiders would be thinking. This whole passage was just a seeker-sensitive proclamation by Paul. And all he means by that is when we gather as a family, we need to be sensitive to the people in our culture who are not yet a part of the family. So sensitive, in fact, that the way in which we speak, the words that we say, the songs, everything that we do would be intelligible and understandable so that when they step in, they have every opportunity possible to hear the gospel and to respond and to believe and to become a part of the family. That's what Paul means, that prophecy is a sign for believers, believing, okay? All right, now Paul's going to take us home. The rest of the chapter is something of a summary application, or we could think of it this way. Like, got it, Paul, you want us to show up to build up. Got it, I'm tracking the prophecy thing, tracking the tongues thing, tracking that I got to pursue love, tracking that I got to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Got it, got it all. So how does that play out in the life of our church and a Sunday morning gathering? Here it is, verse 26 to 40. Paul says first in 26, he says, I want all things to be done for the building up. So that's kind of the pref- uh, his preface. Everything we do as a family is done for the building up of the family. And then in verse 40, where he finishes, he says, all things should be done decently and in order. So everything between verse 26 and 40 is kind of an explanation of uh, doing things for the building up and doing things decently in order. So when it comes to tongues, Paul's just kind of reviewing now. Uh, two to three at most when you gather one at a time, and let someone interpret. No interpreter, keep silent. In other words, if, some, if there's nobody present with a gift of interpretation, then tongues should not be spoken in the church. But he's not discouraging tongues. He's just saying, go speak to God later in tongues. It's good for you. You don't need an interpreter in private. Pray to the Spirit, in your spirit, in tongues later on your own. When it comes to prophecy, Paul's saying, look, I want you to desire this gift. I want you to desire this gift. So if that's Paul, do you know that? Like that's Paul commanding that, right? Are we like, we're, we're tracking that, right? Paul is commanding that we desire that gift. So what would that look for, like for us? I think it begins with increasing our intake of the word, okay? Because whenever God uses somebody to speak prophetically for the good of another person, that message is going to be anchored in the revelation that he's already given, He doesn't give new revelation that rivals authority to God's word. Um, He doesn't give, he definitely doesn't give anything that's going to contradict anything that's already in God's word, right? So if you want to be a prophetic voice in the life of God family, which is what Paul is commanding you to desire, you will have a steady and increasing diet of the word that God has already revealed to us through Christ and through, uh, through our Bibles, right? Through the word that's already here. So um, steady uptake of God's word. That would be the starting point. And then prayer, praying, Uh, praying that we would 
that, we, that, the heart, that the word would permeate us so that when we think, we are thinking thoughts that are anchored in the word. When we view the, wor- the world around us that we are viewing with a, a lens of God's revelation already and praying that God would give us a sensitivity to the people around us, that we would be aware and we would be sensitive, that he would increase our desire to speak life uh, into their lives from his word. And that we would be present relationally. We would know and would, we would be, know, uh, be knowing people. Now, what would that look like here as a church family? If you're wondering, if you feel like God has given you a word for the, for the, for the good of our family, here's what I would ask of you. Um, first of all, that's fantastic. We would give any of you who are a member of our family the opportunity to come to any one of our elders and to say, hey, uh, in my prayer and in the word, I really feel like God wants our church to be aware of fill in the blank, right? And then we as elders would take that and weigh it. And if we were in agreement with what you wanted to say and we, like we had weighed its val- validity, then we would enthusiastically embrace the opportunity for you to share with our family. Paul wants us to desire this. But then he says, look, when you gather, kind of like tongues, two or three at a time, uh, I want you to say what you have to say and then sit down. You're not the focal point. You're not giving a TED Talk. And you've got to recognize that God will speak through other people, right? So he's kind of summarizing that. And then he says, whatever is said prophetically must be weighed by, el- uh, by other people. That's his way of saying that a prophetic utterance from one of us is not infallible like God's word is. God's word is perfect, Uh, the words that we say are imperfect. And so elders and others with a gift of discernment in the family would weigh these words. Verse 33, because uh, the reasons given, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so his family, like your family gatherings reflect the character of your father. Our family gatherings reflect the character of our father. Not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And now the portion you've all been waiting for a word to women, which just seems like, where's this coming from? We're talking about spiritual gifts, like, I don't even understand why this is here. And so what does Paul say to women? Well, before we look at what he says, let me just say this. When passages like this, or when verses like these, are divorced from their context, we make them mean things that Paul never meant. So we need to be careful to keep it in the context in which we find it, right? So let's do that. What does Paul say to to women? And specifically in context, I would encourage you to look at it as this way, to married women. He's addressing women who are married here. He says, I want you to, you ready? Like you already read it, but here we go. Keep silent. You are not permitted to speak. It's actually shameful for you to speak when the church family's gathered. I want you to be in submission as the law says. Further, If there is anything, ladies, that you desire to learn, not here, you go home and stay silent until you get there, and then you ask your husbands there, okay? Uh, It's shameful for you to speak here. I mean, that's what it says. And so now we're like, oh my goodness, wow, what, (laughs) huh? All right, so let's follow basic rules of biblical interpretation so that we can all take deep breaths and and you're going to be okay, all right? So let's follow the first basic rule, and that is when a passage is unclear, we need to clarify it through passages that are more clear, okay? So let's do that. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, 
the prophet Joel, so he's a prophet, he's speaking on behalf of God for God's family. Joel says, when the Holy Spirit, see God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. That's happened. It's happened, right? His spirit has been poured out on us. And when that happens, your sons and who? That'd be ladies, okay? Ladies shall prophesy. What is prophecy? It's a word spoken in public, okay? Key, that's key, public. A word spoken in private is not prophecy. A word saved for your husband spoken at home is not prophecy, okay? So your sons and daughters shall prophesy, old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, okay? So uh, Joel kind of sets that stage, and then when you read the book of Acts, you see that exactly happening, both men and women are praying when the family is gathered, reading scripture when the family is gathered, and given the opportunity to prophesy if the Spirit's given them that gift when the family gathers, men and women. Okay, so we got to start with what's clear and move to what's unclear. Now, further, in this same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, um, right here, what did Paul say? We looked at this a couple weeks ago. He says, every wife who what? Praise or prophesies. Now, look, I'm not even going to get into the comma. We did this a week, couple weeks ago with her head uncovered. Uh, we, the sermon's entitled, Put Your Head Coverings On. That's just clickbait, okay? Um, go listen to the sermon. It'll put you at ease on that chapter too, I hope. But the, the bottom line is what Paul's saying is every wife or woman who prays or prophesies, he's speaking about the public worship gathering. He's not talking about home. He's talking about when the church gathers, and he's saying women should be encouraged and given the opportunity to pray publicly, to prophesy publicly if the Spirit's given that gift, and to read Scripture uh, publicly as well. Okay, so Paul himself says that. So when we get here to chapter 14, Paul cannot mean absolute silence. He cannot mean that a woman cannot get up and share in the gathering, either through prayer or Scripture reading or prophecy. Otherwise, he'd be contradicting himself, but not only himself, he'd be contradicting other authors of scripture, right? So it can't mean that, right? So what, what then? What then does it mean? Well, okay, the next rule of biblical inter- interpretation is context. Context is always king. So what is this entire chapter about? Say again. Sorry, that's not fair. You're all wearing masks. So the entire gathering, or the entire chapter is about when the church comes together for a gathering, and the entire chapter is about pro- prophecy, really, right? It's prophecy in the, in, in, the, in the gathering. But more specifically, right here where Paul's written this, um, he's talking about the weighing of a prophecy during gathering, the gathering, right? So the prophecy's been spoken. Now, you've got to imagine they're in a home church. So the living room is maxed out. There's a ton of people and a ton of noise and a ton of crosstalk, right? There's a ton of talk going back and forth in this setting. And so Paul simply here is saying, he's like, hey, listen, married women um, or yeah, married women or women who can go home and maybe even ask a dad, right? So, so a woman who is still at home, as your contribution to a peaceful, orderly gathering, I want you to just hold on to what you're thinking about that prophecy that's just been shared. I want you to just remain silent as it relates to the prophecy that's just been shared And as you're remaining silent, that's your way of deferring to your husband and the God-given spiritual leadership that he's been entrusted with for your home. That's what Paul means when he says, submit to God's design or God's law. Now, you can go home and you can search God's law for a verse that says women shouldn't talk in the assembly. And guess what you're not going to find? That verse. That's not what he's saying. You can't go find that Bible. He's just saying, 
in God's creative design, he's entrusted husbands with a weight of responsibility to be uh, spiritually leading and caring for his family. And so Paul's just saying, in deference to your husband, allow him, permit him to speak on behalf of the family as the prophecy is being weighed. That's the context. We're talking about weighing a prophecy. If you have concerns, take your concerns and discuss them more with him at home. Paul, look, we, could, we could look at it this way. Paul's just saying no family sidebars during the public worship gathering. Right? We have, we have, we're gathered to be focused on one thing, and it would be super distracting if all through a sermon, anything that was said, husbands and wives are turning to each other and say, man, what does that mean for this thing in our life right now? Like having a sidebar right there on the spot. So no family sidebars. It's distracting. It's shameful to discuss those things in publicly, right? Uh, look, as a couple, you wrestle over whether a sermon or um, like you wrestle over things, right? So Paul's just saying, don't wrestle with the rest of the family gathered together. That's weird and shameful. Like, I know you got to have a wrestling match, but go do that at home. Go have the hard conversation as a husband and wife at home. Don't be a distraction. Uh, wrestle over it at home. So guys or ladies, look, Paul's clear. The Bible is clear. The Spirit has gifted you just like he has gifted men. There's no distinction in the gifting between men and between women. The Spirit gifts you. Your participation in our gathering matters. Paul's been very clear throughout all of Corinthians. You should be, if you want to be involved in this way, uh, given the opportunity to pray publicly just like the men, to read Scripture publicly, and if the Spirit gives this gift, uh, to be able to share a word of prophecy as well. Okay? Can you breathe now? A little bit more? It's still uncomfortable for our modern ears, right? Okay. If you have any further concerns or questions about that, uh, please ask your husband. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Let's talk about it more. Let's talk about it more, okay? Please. Okay. So let's, let's wrap it up this way. Paul throws down right at the very end. Like, he throws down hard, guys. Like, if you're a cessationist Bernie or hyper-charismatic Bernie, crazy Bernie, and you're not phased yet, look at this red line that Paul draws in the sand right here. He throws down. He's not playing anymore. Look at what he says. If you think you are a prophet, or that's kind of to our, that's kind of to our hyper-charismatic side, then he's going to say, if you think you are spiritual, that's kind of to our cessationist Bernie side, because you're super spiritual, because you're more mature, than you don't need those gifts, you're more reserved and orderly, right? More, more spiritual. Paul throws down, he says, if you think you're prophetic, if you think you're so mature spiritually that those gifts are not for you today, you will consider all of this, everything I just wrote down, a what? A command of the Lord. And if you don't, here's where he throws down. He's saying this with the authority of an apostle now on behalf of Jesus. I do not recognize you as spiritual. What does the word spiritual mean? We learned this a couple of weeks ago. It just means from the Spirit, derived from the Spirit. So Paul's saying, if you reject what I've written to you here, I do not believe that the position you hold is from the Spirit. It's simply your opinion. It's simply your preference. It's something you've learned growing up, but it's not from the Spirit. So I just have to ask you, do you consider everything that we just encountered in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 a command from the Lord? That's what Paul's calling us to do. Guys, we become who we are. I'm over my five words now, so I'm going to wrap it up. We become who we are as we show up to build up. 
I just want to say a word pastorally to some of you because you're like, John, I'm too beat up to build up. Like, I can't rise to that expectation. I cannot be here to build other people up. I would say to you as your pastor and as a friend, it, don't stay home. Don't go into isolation. If that's you right now and you're beat up, it matters even that much more that you're present in a family that believes that they exist for you to be built back up. You need to be here with the family and you don't need to do anything. You can take a knee for as long as you need to take a knee. Jesus said, if you are weary, if you are heavy laden, Come to me, and I will give you three steps to make you a better Christian. Do you know that? But that's not what he says, does he? What does he say? Just come to me. Just be here. Just take a knee, and I will give you rest. Guys, if that's you, no shame. In fact, I would even say to you, you think you're so beat up right now that you can't build up other people? Can I just say to you this way? You being here so beat up, And doing nothing but being present tells us that your hope is still in Jesus, that your faith is fading, but you you, you want clarity, like you want hope. And so your presence, while you do nothing but just sit here and heal from the wounds that you carry, is more powerful in building the rest of us up than anything you could ever do for us anyway. Guys, in God's family, your worth is not based on your contribution, unlike the rest of our culture. Your worth is not based on what you do. Your worth is found in Jesus, and he says, be here and rest. So be here, just rest. All right, guys, for the rest of us, we become who we are as we show up to build up. So let's just ask these questions as we leave. Am I showing up? Is it a priority? Am I committed to building up? Am I pursuing love, like actually pursuing Jesus so that I know love? Am I earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts? Like real talk, when's the last time you prayed that the Spirit would allow you to speak prophetically into the life of another member of his family? We could do a show of hands. Guys, we're not praying that way. Most of us, most of us are not praying that way. Are we earnestly desiring? How about now? How about now? We can pray together as a family right now, and that's what we're going to do. Darren, as one of our pastors, is going to come and uh, lead us in a family prayer. Thanks for your patience with me, guys, this morning. I know there was a lot there. And again, if you're still a little uncomfortable with the ladies' passage, uh, let's keep talking about that, okay?